Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Ray Brandon. I'm the pastor for teaching uh, here at Northbridge. I want to welcome you to worship. Welcome those that, that are worshiping with us online. Um, as we get started, I just want to thank uh, Cody uh, for uh, the production of that new app. If you haven't downloaded that, go ahead and do that. Um, it, will, it will help you out. You can go to northbridge.me, uh, northbridge.me. You can still access if you want to use the, the website. But as we get into uh, the, the study of God's Word this morning and preaching and teaching, um, and we respond, we're going to go to the connection card. And um, it's so much easier to fill out that connection card because you don't have to put your email address in again and your phone number and all of that kind of stuff. Um, once you download that app and you log into that app, it's all there and it's just very simple and very easy. And um, if, you, if you are there, if you have done that, um, um, I, I want to, uh, to just encourage you to do one thing for me sometime today, okay, sometime today. And that is to tell me about your small group Bible study that you're a part of. Um, just tell us a little bit about your small group Bible study, what God is teaching you. Um, I'm a part of a Tuesday night Bible study, and um, I'm really enjoying that. That's growing. We have um, uh, a number of people coming. Fortunately, we have um, a large enough space to accommodate that. We eat dinner together, which is uh, a benefit. Um, we've had mac and cheese night, international night. Are you hungry yet? Um, you know, it's, it's just a joy because we spend a lot of time just hanging out together and getting to know each other. And then we dive into God's word and the teaching portion is shared amongst our, um, with our, our group leader, Nick. And sometimes I teach, sometimes Nick teaches and we spend time in prayer. And that is one of the valued and precious times um, in my week. I look forward to that. And, um, and we, have a, we also have, you know, just like we have this morning, we've had a number of people in the room. Um, we have people that are, that are watching at home because of certain restrictions that they have. Um, we have had in our small group, uh, people for various reasons, um, be able to, uh, to zoom in and still participate. And so it's a, it's a joy, you know, given our, um, our day and our technology that, you know, no matter what kinds of circumstances you are wrestling with, you can be engaged um, in Bible study with others, in prayer with others, uh, and um, in community with others. Um, because we have technology, we can be in person to a certain degree, and that's just a joy. And so you may know what's happening in your Bible study. There may be some challenges there. There are always challenges um, when sinful people get together. There's always things we're wrestling with. That's one of the difficulties, but it's one of the joys of being in community that way. But there's also things that God's teaching you. And so if you would utilize that, um, that connection card and the place for comments and prayer requests, just share with me what's happening um, in your group. And what we'd like to do is just be able to read through those, to pray for your groups more effectively. But as well, we may select one or two of those and come and talk to you and see if, if in some way you'd be willing to share that story a little bit fuller so our entire church can benefit um, from seeing what's happening in that small group ministry. It's a vital part of our church, and um, it's a good um, part of our church. Um, it's, a, it's a thriving part of our church, so we want to be able to spread the word that way. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, it's in the New Testament, so that's going to be towards the, towards the back of your Bible. 
and you'll come into a, a bunch of first and seconds. So you probably notice as you flip through the New Testament, first and second Corinthians, that's a, those are two fairly lengthy books in the New Testament. Keep going and you'll, you'll find first and second Thessalonians and then first, you'll find first and second um, Timothy after first and second Thessalonians. If you get into the first and second Peter and one, two, and three John, you've gone too far and just reverse just a little bit. So um, first Timothy chapter one, let me read for you um, from verse one to verse 11. This morning, we're going to focus on verses three through seven. First Timothy chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now I know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make application to our hearts of the text today. Um, as we study God's word this morning, as we teach God's word, as we proclaim and hold forth the word of God, I pray that we would be good stewards of what you have entrusted to us. I pray that the ethos of Northbridge would be one of truth and love. And that your spirit would guide us into that. And so we come before you humbly, um, confessing our shortcomings, confessing our sin, um, understanding that um, there is much that gets in the way um, of our, our, just our mental capacity of comprehending the word of God uh, because our hearts desire things that are not of God. And so we ask that your spirit would work in our lives this morning, that your spirit would break down those barriers uh, from us understanding, those heart barriers, so our mind might be comprehend and our heart may be transformed, and then we, we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, today we live in, in two different kingdoms. Uh, there is the kingdom of this world, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, by faith, you have citizenship, which is in heaven. Uh, so you have dual citizenship. Uh, you have a, a responsibility um, to the kingdom of this world for our citizenship in heaven does not take us out of this world and place any less responsibility uh, on us in this time, but rather it transforms the responsibility that we have to, uh, to the, the planet, to uh, the culture, to our society, uh, to our government. But we have an allegiance that comes before that. We have our faith and our allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. Abraham Kuyper was a, um, a politician and a theologian, a Dutch politician and Dutch theologian. And he talks about the, the, this two-kingdom system that we live in, but it also breaks it down into spheres, spheres of sovereignty. And he talks about the family is one sphere, the church is one sphere, and society is another sphere. Um, so we have this, this two-kingdom system that we, we need to think about, and, but we also have these spheres that God created, and neither sphere is to legislate for the other. They influence, there is certainly overlap, um, but it is the word of God that both creates as well as informs how the family ought to live. It is the word of God that informs the church how the, the household of faith and how we ought to behave as believers in the church, as the church. And it is the word of God that gives good instruction to society and how society ought to be ordered. Now, there's influence of the two, but each of those spheres are separate entities. You know, I don't know where our society is headed, where our, our country is headed. I don't know what the future holds for Christians living um, in, this, in this country. Um, I don't know um, if our nation will continue to pursue the ideal that men and women are to be honored, no matter what their race or their creed. And in fact, we, um, write, we have these words within the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Will our nation continue to pursue this ideal that's written into that declaration, or will it go in some other direction, um, another direction that society is, is desiring to take it, drawing attention to our, our differences rather than to what unites us and allowing those who are strong to silence and oppress with whom they, they disagree. I don't know. Um, I don't know if the Lord will judge our nation by giving her over to her sin and allow unjust rulers to rule over us, men and women who govern in pride and in their hearts give no consideration to God or his moral law revealed in creation, or the Holy Scriptures. We don't know. That's, that's what we can say. Um, but the Scripture does instruct us. 
You know, we have lived in a time in which when, when you look at um, our citizenship in heaven and uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of difficulty um, lining our citizenship in heaven with our citizenship here on earth. And when it comes to those spheres that God has created, there hasn't been a whole lot of difficulty identifying how we ought to live in society and in the church and in families. And hopefully we are the same person in all of those places. But it's going to be more difficult for us as Christians, given the direction of our, our nation, possibly it's going to be difficult, more difficult for us. And the Bible does give us instruction on how to live as exiles, as sojourners, um, in a land that is not aligned um, with the Word of God. In fact, you're studying through that, um, through much of the, the latter part of the Old Testament, um, through the prophets, uh, through the minor prophets that instruct us how to live um, in a society that goes directly against the grain of, of Scripture. But here in the Scriptures, in the text this morning, um, it does give us some instructions. The, the writings of Paul to First Timothy is, is teaching the church that the church had better know what she is and what she is called to be if she is to remain faithful. And, and the instructions here to us as the church, um, they do guide us in, in all of these areas. And so we think, well, we've got a tremendous responsibility. Our allegiance to God, our, our responsibility in this, the kingdom of this world, and we have responsibility to lead our families, and we have a responsibility in the church, uh, we have a responsibility in society. Well, this morning's text helps us in all of these uh, to live consistently, um, to live in honor of, of God. Um, so we need to recognize two things. One, the, the church is a society born of the truth and called to defend and promote the truth. And two, the church is a society of love. So here's the outline. Here's where we're going this morning. Just two points. Uh, the church is a household of truth. And you'll note that from chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, that word household is a key word to this entire book. It really unlocks a lot of meaning. The church is a household of truth. And then second, the church is a household of love. These two things give us instruction on how to live as the church in the world, and they inform all of those areas that I've previously talked about. So first of all, let us recognize that the church is a family of truth, a family of truth, a household of truth. She is a household born of the truth. She is to preserve the truth, and she is to promote the truth to the world. Look at verse 3 in the text. As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So that's the church there at Ephesus. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So Timothy is Paul's co-worker. Um, he, is, he helped him plant churches, and he sends him particularly to Ephesus to do a certain role. His job, among, any, among many things, he was there to teach, but his main responsibility was to appoint elders or pastors. That, that's, that was his main responsibility there. 
and to continue the work that Paul had left there. So 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 points to this. It says this in, in, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me and in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is Timothy's main responsibility. He was commanded by way of extension um, what to do and to hold forth the scriptures in order that, that others might be brought up, raised up, that he was to entrust the word of God to them. And the first thing mentioned here in 1 Timothy is the proclamation and the preservation of truth. That's it. That makes that very clear. Timothy was charged, or we might even say commanded here, that certain persons were not to teach different doctrines. So the, the implication is that there was something happening in the church of Ephesus. There was some other doctrine. This shouldn't surprise us, right? So for those of you that, have, that, that are reading through the scriptures and you read through the New Testament, you get past the gospels and you get into Acts and you see the, the, the progression of the church and then you get beyond Acts. I mean, Acts you begin to see this pattern. The church has all kinds of problems, right? That's why we have the scriptures. And so the books in the New Testament are written to churches. Now, there's, there's a number of strengths, and we don't want to discount those. There's a number of strengths of the church of Ephesus. But there was something happening at Ephesus where there were others that were teaching doctrine which was not sound. And so Paul commands, charges, Timothy here to, to have certain individuals stop teaching what they were teaching. So the question is, what is this different doctrine? Um, doctrine simply means teaching. That's, that's all that the word doctrine, we tend to make a lot of, of doctrine. That just simply means teaching. He was to command that people not teach anything different than they had already been taught. No different teaching was to be allowed in the church that Jesus Christ had founded, and this is a command. And this command continues through the word of God. Teach nothing new in the church other than the truth by which it had been founded. So it's a command. We have to ask, different from what? Different from what doctrine? And here, here what we see in, in this text is a principle. It's good for our own Bible study. It's good for our own Bible study in our, in our small groups. Um, no teaching was to be permitted in the church of Jesus Christ that differed from whose teaching? Paul's, right? Paul is commanding Timothy, don't teach anything different than what I taught you. And so nothing different from Paul's teaching. We can look, if we had time, we could go to Galatians chapter 2, and you might just mark that as a cross-reference to this. Galatians chapter 2. If we push this a little bit further, we could, we could say, well, where did Paul learn what he was taught? Where did Paul learn what, where he was taught? He learned it from Jesus. He learned it from Jesus. So we'd have to say, well, we shouldn't teach anything different from Paul. We shouldn't teach anything different from Jesus. We could push this even a little bit further. And actually, next week is, is going to get into that because he into this next step, 
is that we shouldn't teach anything different that were taught by Moses and the prophets and the psalmist, right? Because what does Jesus refer to? Well, he refers to the Old Testament. And so you might even think about this even further is how do you use the Old Testament? How do we use the Old Testament? Is it just that old part of the Bible that doesn't have any relevance to today? And think about, too, where I started with those sphere sovereignty um, and our allegiance to the kingdom. What speaks, what parts of the Bible speak into the family? What parts of the Bible speak into the household of faith, which is the church? And what parts of the Bible are useful in speaking into how society is governed? Right? Do we just discard and unhitch the Old Testament from the New or say that it's old? And um, we, we do say, well, we are under the new, the new Covenant. What does that mean in that we are not under the Old Covenant? And so we'll, we will talk about some of those things next week as we move into verse 8 and further. But Paul wrote Timothy to, to not teach something different. So what we'd say is not teach something different. That's Paul, Jesus, and all the Old Testament. Don't teach something different. In other words, the teaching needs to be sound and consistent. It needs to be sound and consistent. And we need to understand this. We need to, to grab on to, to this and we, for, for many reasons in the text. The church itself is, is born out of truth. How does the church grow? The church grows in the church's purity because of truth. This, if we were to go back to the message that we, or the messages that we spent on John 17, Jesus prays that we are sanctified, right? Set apart, useful thereby, because we are holy, useful what? For the, for the worship of God and the proclamation of God's good news because of the truth, right? So the church is born of the truth. The church grows by the truth. The church matures into and because of the truth. And so the truth is, is a foundation, but it's also the truth that preserves the unity and peace within the church. So unity and peace within the church are preserved by the truth. We see this in verse 4. Paul continues forbidding that any different doctrine be taught by the promotion of what? Look at verse 4. Myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship, that's an important word, from God that is by faith. Verse 4. He says, don't teach myths and endless genealogies. Well, what are those myths and endless genealogies? Um, there's the, the, the likelihood is that it's two things, um, probably a combination of two things. Um, at the time, there was Gnosticism, so Greek Gnosticism. Greek Gnosticism was a philosophy that um, there was a particular word of knowledge, a secret word of knowledge that individuals would have, and that they had this, um, this experience, this life experience, that would 
inform them, and, and it informed them in such a way that no one else had this particular word of knowledge or life experience. And so Greek Gnosticism was being taught with, within the church. Um, that, was, that was a factor, maybe a, probably a minor factor. A greater factor in this was that there were individuals, it says, speaks to genealogies, um, and talks about the, the law of Moses, is that individuals were going back to Moses, and they, they, were, they were promoting their, their own rank and particular pedigree um, based on genealogy, that they had a certain place within based on their lineage that gave them place within the church in which then they promoted extra-biblical myths based on the law. So those, those are two things that were happening at this time, and those most likely, we can't say with 100% certainty, but he refers to these myths and genealogies, things that are we can definitely say for 100% sure, these are extra-biblical. They're found outside the text of Scripture. Right, So we might not be able to say these are exactly those things, most likely these two things, but we can say for 100% they're extra biblical, that they're outside the story of, of Scripture. And what we are called is we're called to be faithful, good stewards of the truth of God's word. And so we are, we are called um, to, to give out, to repeat the story of God's word. The story can be summarized in different ways. It's a story of creation, man's fall. Redemption, redemption in Christ Jesus, the consummation of all things at, at the end when Christ and Christians are brought to glory. Or we might tell the story in terms of promise and fulfillment. Uh, we might tell the story in terms of the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth, his kingdom that was offered but rejected, promised to Adam, prefigured in Israel, inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, and consummated at the end of time. No matter how we tell the story in this way, the, the covenants that God transacted, transacted with men are of central importance. Furthermore, we, we read in the, in the pages of the Holy Scripture, and we recognize that they are present not only in the words of the Scripture themselves, but also in the method of interpretation. We see this here. We see that, where did David go? King David, he looked back on the law of Moses and interpreted them in a particular way. And the prophets looked back on David and Moses. And Christ himself looked back on the law and the Psalms and the prophets and interpreted them in a particular way. We, if we had time, we could go to Luke 24, where Jesus spends a significant amount of time in the Old Testament. And this method of interpretation was passed on along to the apostles. And his apostles, having written scripture themselves, passed the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament onto the next generation of pastors and teachers, along with this method of interpretation embedded within the text. Right? So not only do we have the text, we also have a way to read the text that we see in the scriptures itself. And... Timothy, as we talked about last week, is not an apostle. He is a pastor, 
And so he is, he is told to what? Preach the good news, to repeat the good news, to proclaim the good news, and in this charge, to command others to not teach anything other than the good news of Scripture. And so that's significant. It's significant. They're handling the scriptures in a particular way. And this little phrase, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. You think about that. Charge persons not to teach different doctrine. You perhaps heard the phrase, doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. It's a silly, might I even say stupid little phrase. That doctrine divides and Jesus unites? How can, like, that does not, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make sense. It's a ridiculous statement. God's truth does not divide, God's truth unites. God's truth unites, it brings the church together. Speculation over things revealed in Scripture will divide. That's what this passage says. Speculation over things revealed in Scripture will divide, but doctrine unites. The church is born out of truth. She's sanctified by the truth, but the church is also united by the, church, by the truth. Where there isn't unity, there is speculation. Where there's division, there isn't truth. There aren't people that are going to the Word of God. One of the best practices that you can put into your home is when you're having a discussion, and you know when these discussions turn, whether either ethical or of great importance, that you say one thing. What does God's word say? What does the Bible say about that? What does Jesus and the law and the prophets and the Apostle Paul, what do they say in the inspired word of God that is from God? What does it say? What does it say? To speculate is a form of theory without firm evidence. But rather in verse 6, what are we called to do? Verse 6 says, we are to produce stewardship from God that is by faith. You can underline that in your Bible. Highlight that in your Bible. To be a steward is a household manager. A household manager. It's to manage what we've already been given. It's to manage what we've already been given. Today, we have something that's very similar to what's happening here in the text. Um, we have a theory, critical theory, that can be attached to theology, to geology, to history, to linguistics, to all kinds of things. And critical theory is, I believe, exactly what the text is addressing in its modern-day version um, for it promotes speculation that is not based on the truth of God's word. You know, it brings certain things <clears throat> forward for our attention. For that, we can say it's positive. Um, but we all know, you know, if you have children around, um, they will bring certain things in a certain way to your attention. And you say, thank you for that. However, we're going to deal with this differently. And that's what God's word is instructing here. That the church needs to know who she is and from where she comes 
and to where she is going. If we are going to operate in these different realms that God has called us. And the church is a household of truth. That's point number one. Point number two. The church is a household of truth. The church is a household of love. Point number two. Secondly, the, the family that we call church is a family of truth, a household of truth and a family or household of love. Look at verse five in the text. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right? So the, it's, it's very clear the aim the aim of this command, the aim of don't teach something different, right? And, and there, there are those of us that any kind of confrontation feels unloving, right? In fact, that probably is a, a doctrine in our culture. Don't do anything that feels like you're building up tension. That simply is the fear of man. That simply is the, the fear of man. And uh, my, okay, sometimes my mind squirrels, and I'm I'm just bringing, I'm reeling it in. Here we go. I'll reel it in. I, I wanted to talk about the the feminization of the pulpit in America, but I'm going to save that for another time. But I do think there are forces at work in which. The, the truth of God's word is perceived as unloving. And because, it is un, because its perception is that it's unloving. Not that it is unloving, right? Not that it is. And some would refer to, well, what about tone? Doesn't tone come into this? Um, yeah, it certainly does. Um, but, but let me ask you this. You know, we've got children in the room. There's children at home. What kind of tone does a mother use when a child steps out into a road? Is that a loving tone? Are you going to chide that mother? Don't use that tone with your child. Speak like this. No, when there's danger, love takes a particular tone. And we become... You know, again, we've become people that have become soft. We have men who are soft to taking a particular tone that is loving based on truth. We need to evaluate that. You know, all tone is not wrong, and there's, there's appropriateness, and there is inappropriateness, for sure, within the church and within pulpits. The wrong tone, the wrong intonation has been used. Absolutely. We need to point that out and be very square when that happens. And certainly there is some subjectivity to that. But we've, the pendulum has swung so far, so far, that the use of any kind of tone of alarm is considered unloving. We need to think about that. So we need to ask, what is love? What is this love that is being referred to? He says, love is the goal to say love is love is to say absolutely nothing at all, <laughs> right? I was taught as a young person, if you have the word in your definition, you haven't defined it. And so another phrase that you'll see in our society, love is love, which means nothing, 
Absolutely nothing. Instead, we must confess what the Bible confesses. What does the Bible say about love? The Bible says God is love. God is love. And if someone is to love truly, then first they must love God supremely. Right? If God is love, to love then is to love God and who else? And Jesus Christ whom God has sent. Only then will they be able to love their neighbor to the utmost. But what does it look like to love God and to love your neighbor? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is to keep the commandments of God. We could go back again to a whole series where we talked about the law of love, the Ten Commandments. This is Paul's aim. Paul's aim is love. He desired to produce within the Christian congregation not idle speculation or vain discussion, but love. Love for God and love for one another. And Paul defends, and we'll get into this further in verse 8, he defends the goodness of the law, provided that one uses it lawfully in verses 8 through 11. Um, but it, it's a, it, it harkens back or reflects the words of the the writer in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, verses 22, or chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Paul's objective to produce love for God and love for one another within the Christian congregation. Um, this is another way here in the text of saying that obedience to God's moral law, and obedience to, to his righteousness and holiness is his aim. That's his aim. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in your conduct since it is written, he is holy, for I am holy. This is the apostle's aim. And when he forbids false doctrine and commands that true doctrine be preached, his aim is love. That's the aim. Right? That's the aim. And so parents that are raising children, right? What is your aim in your children? You want to produce what kind of citizens of this world and citizens of of heaven, loving ones. So how are you going to produce love, right? The household of faith informs the family of faith in how it operates. How are you going to produce loving children? Are you going to draw from what the world says is love and try to produce that in your children? That will not produce love. But what will produce love? God's teaching, the hard teaching of God's word produces soft hearts. Soft teaching produces hard hearts, right? So the, the household of faith forms the household. So how does the church produce love? Let's, let's ask that question. How does the church produce love? First of all, Paul teaches that love must, be, must issue from a pure heart. Notice that in the, in the text. It must issue from a pure heart. The heart is the center of man's being. It's the true person. And a, if a heart is impure, if it's impure, our love will be impure. Tainted. Tainted by selfish ambition, pride, greed, 
all manner of pollution. Do you wish to love God truly? Do you wish to love your neighbor clearly? Your heart must be pure. It must be pure. It must be made pure. You can't make your heart pure. It must be made pure by the blood of the Lamb in regeneration by the Spirit, but it also must be kept pure. It has to be kept pure. If you allow bitterness or unforgiveness to reside in your heart, it will pollute your love. If you are jealous, it will pollute your love. If your heart has been overrun by the anxieties of life, it will pollute your love and love will be stifled. Paul's aim is a love that issues from the pure heart within the congregation. How does that happen? Well, the heart has to be made pure. And that is, he says it a little bit, that's a little bit later, getting ahead, but it's by faith, it's trusting. But it also has to be maintained with purity. Secondly, true love comes from a good conscience. A good conscience. True love comes from a good conscience. The conscience is the part of mankind that can discern what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. Our consciences condemn us when we do wrong. They commend us when we do right. But here's the problem. The conscience of sinful man is not good. It needs to be redeemed. It's seared because of sin, twisted out of shape so that the world calls and the conscience of the world calls what is evil good and what is good evil. If we are to love God and man truly, then our conscience must be made good. And we have a conscience, we have a conscience because we're made in the image of God, but it's corrupted because of Adam. So it needs to be renewed in that second Adam, who is Christ. And he says, this happens by faith. This happens by faith. If your consciousness be good, it needs to be renewed. Renewed by Christ. Renewed in the word of God kept by the Spirit. Paul's aim here is love that issues from a good conscience within the Christian congregation. And that happens by the third thing that's mentioned here in the passage. Three, true love must be issued from a sincere faith. It's only through faith in Christ that our hearts can be pure and our consciences can be made good. It's only through faith in Christ that we can love, worship, and serve God in a way that's pleasing to him. Apart from faith, we stand guilty before him. If we're to love our brothers and our sisters, we must have sincere faith. Faith that is genuine and, not, and, and faith that is, is full faith. It can't be, faith is not, we can't partially, faith by definition, we can't say, well, I'm going to partially have faith. It has to be full it, that's what faith is, for it's our faith in Christ that, that binds us to God through the work of Jesus Christ. It's our faith in Christ that binds us together. By faith, we are united in Christ. By faith, we are adopted into God's family. By faith, we have together been set apart in this world to worship and serve the Father. Paul's aim is to make our faith strong and sincere so that we might love God truly and be bound together in love. So the church, it's two things. The church is a household of truth, and the church 
is a household of love. The church needs to know what it is. When she knows who she is, she will know where she has been, and she will know where she is going, and you will know where and how to stand. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take the word of God this morning, and I pray that you would help us to know how to apply the word. Uh, For we trust this morning in the spirit of God uh, to take the truth of God's word and to transform our heart and our mind so that it activates our will. And so in these next few moments, as we consider our response to the word of God, and then as we are reminded of your generosity as we give, and we are reminded of your generosity as we participate in the elements of communion, I I pray that your spirit would work, for you have worked. Um, You have come and you have demonstrated in the flesh your love to us. And so make your church a household of truth and love, a demonstration, a visible demonstration to the world of that truth and love. Do that in our lives, heart, mind, and will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.